Here to score it for us is the master of disaster public relations specialist, Mike Paul. Mike Paul, known as the reputation doctor. Well, there's a court of law and there's a court of public opinion. Mike Paul is a crisis PR and reputation management expert. He's all about reputation. Got some tips on rebuilding those reputations. You first have to be transparent and then be accountable for your actions. He's got to get on a truth train right now. There's no ifs or buts in a true apology. You must speak directly to the issues that you've been involved with. You're going to have to have an across-the-board solution that is more than words, and you've got to have actions. All right, let's do this. Welcome back to Reputations in Crisis with Mike Paul, the Rep Doc. Today's guest is Jamie Floyd the award-winning journalist who is now working on an amazing new book. She will be an author of a civil rights hero. The name of the book is Dream Interrupted, Searching for Thurgood Marshall and the Struggle to Save the Soul of a Nation, published by Little Brown. That's one of the older publishers, the older great publishers, worldwide. So congratulations, Jamie. Welcome to the show. There's a lot to talk about. So let's dive right in. First, from a judicial perspective, the United States has made history with the first black woman becoming a Supreme Court justice, a promise that the president made that he has promised and fulfilled and her name is Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. Summarize for us why this is so significant. What is it we know about her background? And just as important, what do we expect and predict she might do? That's so important. Right. Well, uh, she is uh, standing on the shoulders of other great black women. Judges, indeed, like Constance Baker Motley, who is uh, my personal hero, Shiro, uh, who was a partner of Thurgood Marshall's and all of the freedom fighting they did together, the first Black woman federal judge. And if, wow. if folks don't know it, we know that Justice, now Justice Jackson, will be the first Black woman justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. But here are some things folks may not have picked up at the hearings. Uh, after Justice Sotomayor, she is the only other justice on the US Supreme Court with federal trial court experience, meaning hearing trials and deciding the issues that come up in a trial court. Why is that so significant? Well, it's significant because that's the real world work, Mike, that judges and real people uh, have to face in a courtroom. That's the real world stuff, right? So um, that's what Judge Jackson is going to bring into court. And Sotomayor has brought that up in so many cases. She basically turns to the other justices and says, let me tell you how it really works in court. It's not just <laughs> theoretical. Let me tell you what really happens when police officers pull someone over and violate their constitutional rights or maybe uphold their constitutional rights. Let me tell you what really happens when evidence is introduced in court the right way or the wrong way. You know, it's the real world experience that Judge Jackson will bring into the Supreme Court. She has other kinds of experience too. 
federal public defender, a public defender, Mike, on the U.S. Supreme Court. Wow. And she assisted in that role, very notably, it came up at the hearings at Guantanamo Bay. She assisted four detainees filing habeas corpus petitions. And, you know, the habeas corpus petition, that is a very critically important thing that the U.S. Supreme Court considers. So this is very significant experience that this woman, yes, she is a Black woman, and it is a, it is a reason to celebrate, but she also is a, an extremely uh, important addition to the jurisprudential life of the U.S. Supreme Court, and they're very fortunate. We, as a nation, are very fortunate to have her experience on the court. So let's jump into some state issues, some federal issues that courts in general are grappling with. This is a crisis show, so we're going to get right into a crisis. We're a nation in crisis, Mike. That's right. Women's issue, abortion, affects men too, but what's happening in our country, both from a state perspective and what might the Supreme Court as well have to grapple with in the next year or two? Can you summarize for people who are not watching the news as often as you or I as to what is the crisis issue regarding abortion in the United States of America today? Well, as you say, uh, you know, 50% of the country, more really, are women. Uh, but I agree with your suggestion, Mike, the reproductive right, abortion, and other reproductive rights that are rolled into the decision, Roe v. Wade, and the other related cases, we call it Roe v. Wade and its progeny. That's the, the legal phrase we use for the cases that come after and are tied to that first uh, landmark case. Um, they affect everyone, not just a woman, but her, her, her partner, uh, whoever that may be, and the rest of her family, all of society, uh, were all affected by reproductive rights. And, and Judge Jackson, of course, declined to explain her own position on abortion and other reproductive rights, given that the issue is currently this term before the court. And there's a chance that Roe v. Wade, that seminal case, will be overturned before Judge Jackson uh, ever gets to the U.S. Supreme Court. But let, let's talk about the universe of abortion cases because it is a whack-a-mole around the country with abortion rights. Over the weekend, the big news in, in, in this arena uh, was that a young woman, 26-year-old Lisel Herrera, was charged with murder in South Texas because of a, quote, self-induced abortion. She was arrested and she was supposed to be arraigned tomorrow the Star County District Attorney's Office would have prosecuted the case, but then it announced rather abruptly yesterday, Monday, that it was asking the judge to dismiss the murder charge against the woman. Um, and, and, and all of this came, I, let me just give you the context of where she lives in Rio Grande City. Uh, it's a community of about 14,000 people, very small community on the Mexico border. And a grand jury actually indicted her for this murder uh, on March 30 for causing the death of a fetus or embryo through a self-induced abortion. All of this might coming in the context of Texas Bill SB8. That's the very controversial 
and restrictive abortion legislation, which does explicitly exempt people like Ms. Herrera, but it makes it so difficult for women like her to get an abortion that the services have been greatly restricted throughout the state of Texas, leaving people no options, no legal options to terminate their pregnancy. And that led to her arrest. Before it led to her arrest, she, in layman's terms, felt so desperate in her decision-making options that she chose to, to do this herself. To the extent we know the facts, yes. What we know of the case, that is correct. Wow. Yes. Wow. I mean, the indictment is sealed. It's a, a secret as, as, as grand jury proceedings are. The facts are somewhat secret. Um, and so it was unclear whether she had assisted someone else or induced her own abortion. But yes, it seems fairly clear that that's what happened. And it's very rare for women to be prosecuted in this way. But given the yeah. hostility against women and their right to an abortion, I would not be surprised to see uh, increasing use of the prosecutorial function against women as their rights, their legal right to an abortion becomes far and far less accessible as it is in Texas. Why, for those who are watching, who see these extremes, why in 2022 are we seeing these types of extremes? This is one example, a horrible example of a choice that someone would have to make. But why are we seeing such extremism in general with the opposing side of others saying, this is how far we are going to move to make sure people understand our view. This is an example that needs to be made of this person. I'm not even seeing her as a person. This is an issue that now allows us to have such punitive damage to a person who seeks with this desperate move to make this choice. Well, you know, Mike, it's a great question. The abortion issue um, has always been one of the most emotional, most contentious, um, most vitriolic debates in our country uh, with people just talking right past each other. And it, it does all come down to this question of religiosity versus science with some people really believing that life begins at conception and other people believing that at some point life begins and at some point as the fetus develops, life begins, but we can determine with science when that is. And that's what Roe v. Wade is all about. Let's switch gears a little bit and jump into another topic now. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which was the first promise or one of the first promises from President Biden. Um, the black community has made clear it's a must. Of course, this Voting Rights Act doesn't just affect black folks. There are senior people, including the senator from South Carolina and others, the senator from Georgia, who are leading this charge, even a senator from New Jersey who is a, a strong advocate behind them. And no movement in the Senate. What is your prediction as to what's going to happen? And if it doesn't happen... Does the president of the United States have an option of having a second term? <laughs> I love the that's way you phrase that question. That's, that's how big an issue it is for 
If we if we gave you the election, right? If we black folks helped you to get elected, so says the evidence, and you fall short of this goal of protecting our and others' rights to vote, there are many people who will not vote for him. I hear you. I I, I just laughed because your question just took your question just took a turn to the obvious. Okay, so so the bill obviously has. Uh, the name of uh, one of my heroes and yours, John Lewis, on it. And that helped a lot um, because this is a man who very nearly died for all of us to have the right to vote. But for people to understand why we're here again, I mean, come on now. We had the 1965 Voting Rights Act, right? That's what we're here debating. That's why. But, but, but we had people marching and dying so that we could all vote. Uh, we have the Reconstruction Amendment. So why are we having another discussion about voting rights? Don't we all have voting rights? I get this question all the time. And so to really understand why it matters, we have to go back to the very recent and extremely damaging case of Shelby County, which was a Supreme Court decision. We're back in the US Supreme Court, which is why it matters so much, of 2013, which crippled the federal government's ability under that 1965 Voting Rights Act signed by President Johnson, but secured by people like John Lewis and like Dr. King and like uh, Reverend Abernathy and Coretta Scott King, the people who marched across that bridge in Selma uh, to prevent discriminatory changes to voting laws and procedures in the states across the country. And what has been happening, Mike, as you know, but a lot of people who ask me seem confused about this. States across the country are going after voting rights. They're, they're unleashing voter suppression schemes, redistricting schemes, schemes to systematically disenfranchise the very same people that were enfranchised by the Voting Rights Act and the Reconstruction Amendment. Let's speak plainly, black and brown people, black people and brown people, and some poor white people, the people that don't have power. And don't hand me a bottle of water. Don't be handing me a bottle of water. That'll be against the law if you do so. That's right. That's right. And it doesn't take a whole lot of Googling to look back and see what we endured to get our voting rights. German shepherds, beat downs with batons by police officers and nasty citizens, uh, uh, hoses on children, children who were marching for civil rights and voting rights. That have the power to rip skin. Hoses, fire hoses, just so people understand, those fire hoses weren't just a little wet. They had the force to rip the skin off of your body. Go ahead. And they did rip the skin off of the bodies of men, women, and children. There are 45 senators, as you point out, who are in favor of this new John Lewis Voting Rights Act to stop this new repression of our voting rights. Um, but you need more than 45, <laughs> it, it, the way the Senate is structured, and we really need to get it done before the sh Senate shifts. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who's a Republican or, uh, you know, you got, we don't have 50 Black senators, right? I'm not even saying that a Black senator would necessarily vote for it. But well-meaning, right-minded people who believe in democracy should believe in the right of everyone to vote. Yeah, but, but, 
But Jamie, we got to now shift to a, a, an issue that impacts all of this. So the rise of separatist groups, white separatist groups in America, not just the Proud Boys and others that were involved with January 6th, there's even an uptick in the old boy, the KKK in America. Yes, in 2022. So when we have a nation divided with some extreme groups and thinking by those who still think that way since two generations, three generations in this country, and now we're talking about the Voting Rights Act, what do you think of just the rise of separatist groups? And we saw they're your neighbor. Some of them are off-duty and retired police officers. Some are retired military. We see when the FBI and the Department of Justice is looking for them and seeking more information, just who they are individually, they could be living right next door to you today. Right. So so I, I met John Lewis back uh, in 2005, Mike, on the bridge in Selma on the 40th anniversary of that first march, which was in 1965, where he very nearly died for all of us to be able to vote. And there were a lot of folks there, it wasn't just black folks there for that anniversary. And, and two of the other people I met there, one was the daughter of the first white woman who was murdered by the Ku Klux Klan in the civil rights movement, Viola Liuzzo. Um, and she's not celebrated enough. This woman is not celebrated enough. She was murdered by the Klan for driving freedom fighters, the, the freedom summer workers, um, around to register people to vote. And that was a poignant reminder to me that the civil rights movement was a movement, not just of black people, but of all people, because you cannot have a movement that is of only the oppressed. You have to build a coalition. The right. other, and this white woman had driven from, from the North, as we called it, leaving her babies behind. She had a bunch of children, including Mary Louise, woman, the woman I met, and they, they lost their mama. Um, and, and her husband lost his wife because she was doing this good work. The other person that I met was the person, one of the founders of the Southern Poverty Law Center, which I urge people to look up. And the reason I mention it, Mike, is because they track the very groups you are talking about, hate groups in America. That's what they do. That's the work of the Southern Poverty Law Center. You are correct that these groups are on the rise but they have always been here. They have always been here. And what has happened in the last four, five years under the leadership of our previous president is they felt comfortable to come out from under their rocks. <laughs> and listen, I have ancestors who were in some of these groups. I'm just gonna be honest with you because you know th this is America. And the history of America is that we are a country divided and we need to be a country united. And we're at our best when we're united, but it's a lot of work to be united. Sometimes it feels easier to be divided. We have to get back to the United States of America. And there are those who are working to divide us for their own selfish purposes. And we need even those of us who feel comfortable in those separatist groups to think about what really our country is all about. It is about moving forward to that better place on the arc of the moral universe. It is not about sitting in our misery, our anger, our hate, 
You don't feel good when you hate. You don't feel good when you hate. Just speak to yourself truthfully. You feel good sitting in that hate? No, you don't. Right. You always feel better when you love your enemy. I know, I know that's what Christ said, but I truly believe it. Love your enemy as you would love yourself and you will feel better and our nation will walk better toward a better tomorrow. Then let's use that as an example that's difficult for some people. We have a Supreme Court justice who has his own views. He's a black man. His name is Clarence Thomas. And his wife, Ginny, allegedly was very involved with the planning and execution of the January 6th riots. A sitting Supreme Court justice who happens to be a black man, a conservative, and a Republican whose wife, with so-called proof, we're going to see how far the allegations go, was personally involved with the January 6th riots and rising to the point where people are calling not just for his wife to be punished, but for the Supreme Court justice to not only be punished himself, but potentially calls for him to step down as a Supreme Court justice. What say you of these charges and how could this potentially play out? So I, um, I am actually in favor of lifetime appointments for the Supreme Court. And we don't have to talk about why here, because that's not the subject of this show. But um, the court I clerked at, the California Supreme Court, actually had uh, a recall option. If the public got annoyed with the judge, you could be recalled. My judge was not recalled. But um, some judges were. <laughs> so that is something we could consider for our court. I don't like it. It makes it too political. But there are times when I do wonder about the lifetime appointment. There is no mechanism for this court to police itself. All that happens here is John Roberts calls Justice Thomas in. They have a conversation. Um, there's no evidence that Justice Thomas knew anything about Ginny Thomas's interactions with Mr. Meadows or the White House on January 6th, let alone that he approved it uh, or approved of it. Um, they may completely wall themselves off from one another when it comes to his business and her business. I don't know what happens in their household. I know in my own household, I wall myself off. Uh, my husband doesn't know what my sources are, for example. I don't know who his clients are. He's a criminal defense attorney. We're very good about that. So I will give Justice Thomas the benefit of the doubt on that. I do think that for the life of his uh, judgeship or just his time on the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, his wife's political activities have been a problem for him. And it is better for, I do, for the life, it's not just this last thing, the life of his time. And for justice, it is much better to have a partner who understands the mission of the court, the mission of the justice, and the need for the partner to be involved in activities that are not going to delegitimize that justice in the eyes of the public. And Clarence Thomas already headed to the court with difficulty. Uh, I will point out, ironically, that he was the justice who replaced Thurgood Marshall. Not just in, not just <laughs> in terms of being the black seat, the black male seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. Now we have another black person on the U.S. Supreme Court, so that's good. That's great. That's wonderful. But there was sort of a, uh, in the eyes of many people, tragic irony in the selection of Clarence Thomas 
because though they had very similar backgrounds, black men from the segregated South, uh, you know, making their way up to great success in the world, they were ideologically completely polar opposites in terms of their views of race and the world and how it intersects with opportunity, equality, and outcome. Two more subjects. One is, what do we expect this summer in dealing with the cops and the black community especially? We've talked about a lot of different subjects. Will it be marching just for the Voting Rights Act, for example? Will it be marching, sadly, because we expect more deaths? I wish I didn't have to say that, but it, it, it's what normally happens. And then after talking about that subject, I want to get into your book uh, before we close. But let's talk for at least a couple of minutes here about what we're expecting this summer. It's going to be hot, both down south and on the east coast and on the west coast. Uh, will it be hot just from a temperature perspective or will it be hot because we were going to see more people marching in the streets that look like you and I? Well, you know, some of what we see uh, with regard to law enforcement depends on law enforcement. I'm terribly troubled, deeply disturbed that we've not seen more progress since the murder of George Floyd. There's a lot of noise, a lot of conversations, a lot of big ads taken out in newspapers. What would progress look like? What would progress look like? Progress looks like real change. C-suites that look like you and me. Uh, real hiring change, real reform uh, at the legislative level, both federal, state, city. Now, there were some changes. I don't want to say there weren't because I, I reported on them. We covered them. Uh, there, there, were, there was nibbling around the edges of change. So there were some changes. I, I don't want to pretend there weren't changes, bail reform and the like. Uh, but there, the, first of all, there's a, there's a whip back against that. We're having some whiplash, oh, bail reform. Well, now look at all the crime. It's because of bail reform. I'm here to tell you it is not because of bail reform. And that we can have another show. We can talk all about that. But any change we did have was small and, and, and incremental and, and is being reversed in many places. And people aren't even paying attention to that. Let me frame it a little bit here, Jamie, so people understand. So there's two types of major reforms that people are looking at, and they're, they, they all don't look like us, right? So one is, there's a big uptick in crime around the nation, and many people are blaming black people for that crime. We have some mayors and some police commissioners that are now black, and those crimes still continue, so that's one issue. The other issue that you and I are really focusing on right now from a black perspective is... No, no, no. We just want to be able to walk the streets and be able to come home and not be killed by a police officer, which is a totally different issue, as important or more important than the other. And that's part of the divide in the conversation when you deal with the police, black folks and crime in general in this nation. Crime is upticking. A lot of people think it's black folks that are doing it. And then black folks are saying, no, 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 no. The bigger issue is we just want to come home at night and not be killed by a police officer. And that is still the biggest issue in our nation. Right. OK, so there, there are three actually things. First of all, the crime wave. We really have to look at data, not what law enforcement tells us, not what we feel when we walk on the uh -huh. subway. I mean, is crime really up? 
I mean, that's the first, and which crimes are up? Which crimes are up? So, so there's that, and where are they up? What's happening in Washington, D.C. is different from what's happening in, say, Portland or San Francisco or a small community in Iowa. So there's that, and we put that aside. And who's really responsible, and does it have anything to do with the reforms or not? That's a big thing to unpack. That's number one. Number two is exactly what you mentioned, the very thing that launched Black Lives Matter in the first place, the death of young, and not young, Black people, and not just Black men, at the hands of law enforcement or pseudo-law enforcement. And I feel that hasn't changed at all. I mean, black George Floyd, that's right. Black women too, that's what I said. And, and George Floyd was a horribly egregious example caught on tape, but where's the change? Where is the change? The names just keep coming. So that, and, and that requires the kind of structural evolutionary change that we just have not seen. And, and we're, you know, it's as Michelle Alexander calls the prison, the carceral system, the new Jim Crow. And that continues as well, by the way. Yes, we're, we're seeing some change in that system, some change, but, but we still have punitive excess. As my friend Jeremy Travis and Bruce Western, they're, they're doing a wonderful series at the Brennan Center called Punitive Excess and the ongoing nature of our carceral system. But we, on the, de on the regular, you and me walking down the street, or more, more to the point, our sons have to worry about whether they make it home. That's, that's, right. not, that's not changed. And then there is the third economic opportunity. Economic opportunity. Who gets hired? Who gets promoted? Who gets retained? Who gets fired? What people are paid? Equity in the workplace. And I feel there's been a whole lot of change there at all in any industry. So that's my frustration with the post-George Floyd era. And when George Floyd was murdered, gave his life for the cause, I was cynical. I said, well, okay, everybody's talking about hope and change. We'll see six months from now, let's see what's happened. One year from now, let's see what's happened. I certainly knew two years out, we'd be pretty much back where we'd started. And we are. And so what, how do we get there? It's leadership. It's leadership. So marching this summer, yes, I there will be marching this summer, but it needs to be organized, concerted for a purpose. And I would agree with you, that purpose needs to be voting, voting rights. Let's get back behind the original issue, voting rights. Let's get that bill passed. Let's all get out there and march for a cause. I mean, yes, we're angry, but but let's not get out there and burn our own neighborhoods and, 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 and loot, let's not do that. No looting, that's bad. We don't need to be arrested, put in jail. Let's get organized at the local level, but across the nation communicating because we have social media now, which we did not have in the 60s, 70s and 80s and get a concerted voting rights march going nationwide in the name of the great John Lewis. That's what I would argue for. That's what I hope for. And we may see it happen. We may see it happen. And last but certainly not least, you're writing a book, a new book on Justice Marshall, a hero to many. 
Let's repeat the name, Dream Interrupted, searching for Thurgood Marshall and the struggle to save the soul of a nation. I love the subhead as much as I like the title. And explain how you came up with the name and explain the title and summarize for us what we should expect when the book comes out maybe a year or so from now. So I grew up just a few blocks from the Thurgood Marshall Courthouse on the Lower East Side of New York City. And um, my parents were not attorneys by any means, but I, I was always so impressed by that courthouse. The other thing I was, and his name on the side of it, but the other thing I was so moved by was a clipping my father had pinned up to his uh, bulletin board over a, an artist table that he kept in the living room. My father was an, an artist. Um, of Thurgood Marshall standing on the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court, which looked a lot like that same courthouse. I was a very small child, but to me, they were courthouses. And I asked my uh, daddy, Jim, as I called my father, what these men were smiling about one day. And he sat me down and he told me all about Brown versus Board of Education. That's what they were doing on the steps that day. It was right after the announcement. And that case, which came down 10 years before I was born, obviously changed history for black and brown children, but it also might change the structure of the law in the United States. It was all about segregation, desegregation, reversing Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the landmark Supreme Court case that said segregation was okay. And so I recognized that Thurgood Marshall, and it wasn't just Marshall, it was Marshall and his team of lawyers and others who weren't lawyers like the great John Hope Franklin, a, a, a famous black historian who worked with Marshall on the brief in Brown. And Marshall's mentor, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, who was the Dean at Howard Law School. Uh, and this was during Jim Crow, Mike, when black lawyers were an unusual thing. Uh, and yeah. of course, Constance Baker Motley, who I mentioned earlier, uh, Katanji Brown Jackson stands on her shoulders because she was the first black woman to argue in the Supreme Court. She was the brains behind so many of Thurgood Marshall's brilliant briefs. And she worked on the Brown case, of course. So this is the team that inspired me as a young woman and Thurgood Marshall is the man and his work, his cases, his life as a lawyer before he ever got to the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, he traveled the That's South. That's I asked you about. He had a life, Mike, traveling all over this country, defending Black people, Black men who were accused of horrific crimes. His life had to be threatened every single day. It was. He, he, his clients were at risk of being lynched, and he was very nearly lynched for defending these men who were accused of raping white women or murdering white people, very often wrongly, mostly wrongly accused. And he believed in their constitutional right to a fair trial, to a jury of their peers. Black people couldn't serve on juries. So how'd they get a jury of their peers? So this is what he believed in long before he got to the US Supreme Court, long before he got there, long before he argued before the US Supreme Court. He argued 32 cases in the US Supreme Court and won 28 of them. So this man, this man, before people even knew 
his name as a justice. He was the greatest American lawyer this country has ever had. I really believe that to my core. He's not celebrated enough. But this book isn't, there have been biographies of Marshall. This book is about our search, our search now for the legacy of Marshall, what his words can teach us now, what his dream was for our better nation, for the perfect union, and how that dream has been interrupted. The schools are still segregated. Our people are still incarcerated. The jury system is still broken. All the things he fought for. And he would want us to keep fighting. So what are the lessons he gives us that we can take forward in the work that he needs us to keep doing? That's what the book is. What an amazing book we look forward to. Uh, The Courage of the Man, now written by the woman who has, in my opinion, courage herself for speaking out and standing up for many atrocities that still happen in our nation in all sectors. And we look forward to the book and having you back on the show when it comes out. Hopefully I get one of the first copies and we can talk about it. You certainly will, my uh, friend. Thank you. Jamie, we'll keep in touch. There's going to be more happening probably even before summer as we predict that there's going to be people marching in the streets again. Thank you so much for coming on Reputations in Crisis, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Mike Paul. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thank you for having me. I look forward to it. You're welcome. And today's T-shirt is Stop Violence Against Women. Obviously a very important subject. We talked today about a female Supreme Court justice. We talked today about abortion. We talked today about issues that affect everybody. But we really want to focus on women in today's show to let them know that we care about them, that we love them, that we respect them, and that we as men can stand alongside them on important issues like this violence. Thank you. So this week's opinion of our show with Jamie Floyd, look, there's a lot of issues happening right now that deal with race and justice and the Supreme Court and various separatist groups and racism. I can go on and on. What an amazing expert that we had in Jamie to come on and explain it all to us. She's also going to write a tremendous book about Thurgood Marshall. We look forward to that. I predict it's going to be a hot summer. I predict we're going to have a lot of issues that we're going to be grappling with from a race and justice perspective. I think that people will be marching in the streets. Who knows? We might be joining them. But stay tuned for more. There's very important issues from a judicial perspective, from a civil rights perspective, and from a race and justice perspective that we have to not only keep our eye on, but perhaps participate in ourselves. More soon. And thank you so much for tuning into our program, Reputations in Crisis with Mike Paul, the Rep Doc. And remember, less head work, more heart work, peace. And remember to follow us on YouTube and also in our podcast versions on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
and Spotify. Have a terrific week. We'll see you soon.